It only took a handful of moments or months, but eventually one particular church's pastoral search committee finally agreed on a description or perhaps a profile of what they considered to be the perfect pastor. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes every week, often condemns sin, and never hurts anyone's feelings. The perfect pastor works from 8 in the morning until very late at night and doubles as the church's janitor, while also maintaining a model marriage, spending plenty of time with his six children, and investing lots of time in building relationships with non-Christians in his community. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week. He wears nice clothes, he drives a good car, and he ties $30 a week. He's 35 years old with 45 years of ministry experience. Above all, he is handsome, and he's also extremely humble. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to spend time with teenagers while spending most of his time with senior citizens. He makes 15 visits to people's homes each week and is always in his office whenever needed. The perfect pastor smiles all the time, has an awesome sense of humor, and is deadly serious consistently about his work. The perfect pastor. Aren't you guys glad you found him? (laughs) Just kidding. Sort of. No. Fully. I wonder if this was the same pastor search committee that uh, perhaps this cartoon is rendered after. It says, basically, we're looking for an innovative pastor with a fresh vision who will inspire our church to remain exactly the same. Well, one thing is for certain this morning, friends. This idea of maintaining the status quo was certainly not on the Apostle Paul's mind when he dropped off his precious son in the faith That is, of course, his pastoral protege and prized pupil in the gospel ministry, a young man by the name of Timothy, there in that big city of Ephesus, while Paul made his way on to Macedonia. Friends, this morning, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 specifically, we're going to come back to verses 8 to verse 11 next week. At the beginning of Paul's letter to Timothy, I want you to observe two really key things here at the outset of this book. First, an intimate greeting in verses 1 and 2, and second, an urgent goal in verses 3 through 7. We see that Timothy's urgent task in ancient Ephesus, simply put, was to guard the good deposit, to guard the gospel while on his personal watch in the ministry. Now, we have noted that several times already this month as we've begun this new series in the pastoral letters. One of the places where we see this purpose statement is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, and the other is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, where we read about this urgent uh, pastoral priority that undergirds everything else Paul says in the pastoral letters. He says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And exactly how do you do that, Paul? Well, he goes on, by avoiding the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By, for by professing it, some have swerved, as Brian let us in singing this morning, some have swerved away from the faith. Timothy, grace be with you. 
Then the other place, the other bookend where Paul mentions this uh, theme of the pastoral letters is 2 Timothy 1, verse 13 and verse 14. Where we read, likewise, Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In a sense, we can hear Pastor Paul say to Timothy, Timothy, my son, you are not alone in your task. Remember, remember what you have heard and what you have seen from me, young Timothy, and always rely on the Holy Spirit who lives in you in order to wage the good warfare of faith and to guard the good deposit of grace in your ministry. Listen, friends, every pastor at times feels like they're alone in ministry. And every faithful pastor, Paul reminds us, needs to be aware of the fact that they are never alone in the ministry. Now, we need to understand that Paul very likely wrote this letter of 1 Timothy sometime around 62, maybe 63 A.D. That is, we read in his opening greeting, 1 Timothy 1, verse 1 and 2. These are words coming out of Paul's final years of his life here on earth. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now look, ministry in the major metropolitan city of Ephesus, as Paul well knew from his three-year stint in Ephesus, was not going to be a piece of cake for, young, for a young leader like Timothy. Ephesus, you see, was a very large, socially affluent, culturally diverse, and spiritually dark city. In fact, one New Testament scholar noted that we would be hard-pressed to find a city in the first century that offered a more fertile soil for false teaching than the city of Ephesus. Timothy, to use a baseball analogy this morning, had, had been fast-tracked to the big leagues of local church ministry, and Ephesus was maybe the New York of the big league. Now, what's more, ancient Ephesus was located on the western edge of what is today the modern state of Turkey. Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia at that time, and it was therefore the region's great political, commercial, and even religious epicenter. We could say that basically this was the L.A. of Asia Minor in Paul's day. Ephesus was also the home of a very important pagan temple, the temple to Artemis or Diana, if you prefer, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It was also likewise home to a sizable Jewish population, which seems to account for much of the spiritual confusion and controversy that Timothy was charged to opposing in his ministry. In short, in less than a decade into its existence, and just as Pastor Paul himself had previously predicted in Acts chapter 20, the church in Ephesus had been infected with heretical teaching and stood in need of being disinfected with the truth of God's grace in the gospel. 
Now, friends, there are two additional things that I would like for you to note from Paul's personal greeting to Timothy before we move to Timothy's goal in the ministry. And the first is the question, what big purpose did this greeting actually serve for Timothy? And likewise, for the church in Ephesus that he was sent to shepherd. Well, look, we need to understand that Paul wrote these pastoral epistles, again, first and second Timothy, and also the letter to Titus. He wrote these to these uh, treasured sons in his service. But more than that, Paul was also sending these messages through these men. In other words, Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus, but in a sense, Paul wrote through them to the church as well. Now, unfortunately, there was not much of a honeymoon period for Timothy when he arrived in Ephesus. Just this past week, I think it was maybe Monday, I hit my seven-year mark as your pastor here at Trinity. It's hard to believe that seven years ago, God sent us from New Jersey to come and be your pastor. It has been a thrilling journey. And much, friends, has been accomplished. But that first year, I have to admit, felt very differently than every year since. I think there was a little bit of a honeymoon there at the beginning. And then the churches merged, and then everything else began to happen, and it's been wild since. Timothy had no such honeymoon when he arrived in Ephesus. That is, from the very moment that Paul left, Timothy would have to hit the ground running, opposing false teaching identifying fresh leaders, and instructing a fragile community in the ways of Christ and in the words of the gospel. I'll notice in the passage there that Timothy's credentials then would have come in the form of Paul's own personal greeting and serious charge to him. Remember, Jesus had set apart Paul. Paul had set apart Timothy. And Timothy was to set apart a new generation of godly leaders to graciously care for God's spiritual house in Ephesus. That's how it works. Listen, even though Paul's letter to Timothy was private and personal in a sense, it was to be read in public before the church in the whole hearing of the house of God so that everybody knew that Timothy was Paul's apostolic delegate there in the city of Ephesus. And further, that everybody knew that Timothy was God's man in charge in that day. Again, Paul wrote to Timothy, but also Paul wrote through Timothy to the church. The next question then for us to consider this morning is, well, why Timothy? Why not any one of Paul's other missionary uh, friends or companions? What made this man spiritually qualified or maybe personally prepared for such an important task in such a prominent place like the city of ancient Ephesus? Well, again, we should bear in mind that Timothy had already traveled, and and I mean literally had traveled all over the Roman Empire with the apostle Paul. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read these words, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, Paul writes, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in your faith. By the time that we get to the pastoral 
letters, Timothy had been Paul's little a apostolic apprentice for nearly 15 years. That's something significant to note. Now, we are at first introduced to Timothy, uh, whose name, by the way, means one who honors God. And that's one of my brother's names, in fact, Timothy, one who honors God. We first meet young Timothy in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Here we read from Dr. Luke and the book of Acts. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. These are cities in Asia Minor. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them Uh, They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is where we first encounter young Timothy. For nearly two entire decades then, Timothy both went with Paul, and Timothy was sent out by Paul in service to Christ and to the church. In fact, if you read your New Testaments carefully, you may notice that at least for the Apostle Paul, Timothy was the cream of the crop. You couldn't get really any better than young Timothy. He's mentioned in at least seven of Paul's New Testament letters. Here's two big examples to commend the character of young Timothy. The first comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and verse 17. Paul says to the church there, I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. It's as if we hear Paul say to the Corinthians, Hey, church, do you want to see what my life and my teaching actually looks like? Well, then look no further than Timothy. I'll send Timothy to you. For his lips and his life will remind you of my ways and my words that are in all the churches. Just look at him and you'll remember me. Isn't that beautiful? Remember, Paul sent Timothy, but who sent Paul? Jesus sent Paul. So in a sense, when anybody looks at our life, they should have a chain reaction all the way back to Jesus. When they see you, they should see the one who discipled you, who discipled them, who discipled them all the way back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should look like Jesus. Or what about Paul's other sterling commendation that comes in Philippians chapter 2? I love this, this passage. Philippians 2, verse 19 and following, which says, I hope in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Remember Paul's writing from prison here. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How did they know that? Well, Timothy had been with Paul there in Philippi. How as a son with a father he had served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly, I myself, will come as well. Listen, the point 
is that Paul could leave Timothy to his task in Ephesus with a clear conscience because he had personally invested in and prepared Timothy for his task in Ephesus over many years. Timothy was prepared for his day. Listen, ministry is difficult, period. But ministry, when you're ill-prepared, is deadly. It is deadly. Timothy had been trained for his task in the truth. And friends, don't underestimate the value of ministry preparation. If you read Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, you'll find that Paul spent 14 years. Paul spent 14 years preparing for ministry. Timothy spent at least 15 years or so preparing for his pastoral pastoral position there in Ephesus. Even Jesus spent 30 years in preparation before he advanced in public ministry for the final three. So many of us want to rush into leadership when the scripture reminds us that we must be prepared for leadership. There's no one-size-fits-all answer for that, but the principle is very clear. If you want to lead or you want to be used in God's house, you need to be faithful today in preparing for that opportunity to serve and to lead. So on the one hand, Paul's greeting was, in a sense, an endorsement of Timothy's proven character and of his ministry competencies for the Ephesians to be aware of. But secondly, it was also an encouragement, I think, personally, to Timothy himself. Why? Well, let me ask you a bit of a pop quiz as we've spent a lot of time in the pastoral letters in my ministry here. What was Paul's standard apostolic greeting in his letters? In other words, what would he sign off or or sign from the beginning? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. A beautiful, theologically rich greeting. I believe that occurs in 11 of Paul's New Testament letters. Some of them are listed perhaps up on the screen. But what was Paul's unique apostolic greeting to Timothy? Because it was different if you were paying attention a few moments ago. In both of Paul's letters to Timothy, it's not grace and peace. It's grace, mercy, and peace. And it's only to Timothy that Paul writes this greeting. Verse, one of, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, 1 Timothy, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, likewise says to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, mercy, as one pastor has put it, is God's grace extended or exercised in deliverance through difficult circumstances, which is uh, precisely what Timothy needed in his circumstances. That is, Timothy, while faithful, you probably know, was often quite fearful. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but of love and of sound mind and power in the spirit. Paul wanted to encourage his young friend's heart with a trifecta of divine truth. Grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy, you have all the grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and of Christ Jesus our Lord that you'll ever need. 
You're not alone. You have the full resources of the triune God backing you up for the confrontation coming your way. This awesome encouragement must have steeled the spine of a weak and often worried worker in the ministry by the name of Timothy as he braced himself for the task of defending the gospel of Jesus Christ there in the big city of Ephesus. And I think this is partly why Paul's opening his letter in the way that he does. Listen, I can't tell you how many times since becoming a pastor at the tender age of 26 years old that I have felt fearful and alone in the ministry. Too many to count. But I'm here to tell you today what has strengthened me and sustained me over these 17 years. It's God's grace. It's God's mercy. And it's God's peace. It's not things going well. It's who's by my side. It's God's grace, mercy, and peace. See, a man who remembers that in Christ Jesus, he possesses God's grace, mercy, and peace without measure is a man who is never outmanned or is never outmatched, regardless of the odds. Mary, Queen of Scots, famously said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than all the assembled armies of Europe. How would you like to have such a powerful ministry as that? This is the kind of man whom the Lord can and will use to guard the gospel and to build his church. And friends, Timothy was just such a man. I hope and I pray that I prove to be one just the same. So, secondly this morning, as we move from the greeting now to the goal, what was Timothy's critical task there in Ephesus? Or perhaps to put it another way, what is the true goal or what is the true aim of any gospel ministry that's going to be faithful by any faithful servant in their own day. Well, I think we could sum up, in a sense, what Paul's purpose in giving Timothy this task in Ephesus was by simply saying that Timothy was to shepherd Jesus' sheep by firstly fighting off a pack of fierce wolves. Again, Paul had said that such a day would come to the church there in Ephesus. It's recorded in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28. This occurs some five to eight years before Timothy arrives there in Ephesus. Just listen to what Paul has, says here, recorded by Dr. Luke. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul says... I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I think it will prove helpful here rather quickly at the beginning of this sermon series to survey all the various places and passages where Paul points out the imminent problem of false doctrine and false teaching, vain myths and endless genealogies, and other empty speculations that are going to occur throughout our study of the pastoral letters. You, you might want to jot down these references at the very least and look at them later. The first occurs in verse 3 and 4 of the opening chapter. Paul says, as I urged you when I, was in, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 
nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Already here in the first opening verses, we have a first occurrence of false doctrine. Glance down to chapter 4, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7, we read these words, Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing, Timothy, to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. There's a second instance. Well, go to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 2. And we read, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Well, in the same chapter, we find that opening uh, verse of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 to 21. We've already read that verse for you. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, you could also add that one to the list. Stay there in 2 Timothy chapter 2 now in verse 14. 2 Timothy 2, verse 14, Paul says, Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Same chapter, verse 23. Paul says again, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they only breed quarrels. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. Are we getting the point? We could go over to Titus. There are two instances in the letter to Titus that speak of the same problem. Titus chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Paul says to this particular pupil, This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Finally, Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. My point simply today is that Timothy's first task in Ephesus, plainly put, was to put a stop to anything and everything that pulled people's eyes off of Jesus. There there is no end to the enticements and the divisions 
and the discussions that the world, and even at times in the church, want to allure you away from having your gaze on the cross of Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on the Savior. Timothy was to guard the deposit by stamping out the fires of fanciful speculation and false teaching running amok. Each and every time, friends, we lose sight of the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we fall for a vain thing. Keep your eye on the main thing, and you won't be seduced to follow after vain things. To put it another way, if we are not continually captivated by the truth and beauty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then we will become enamored and ensnared with the lies of this corrupt and fallen world. It's simply a law of our fallen nature. Now, in a really, really good recent book, uh, pastor and author Gavin Ortland, the book is entitled Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Gavin Ortland states very helpfully that doctrinal sectarianism, that's a fancy word there, let me uh, unpack that for you. Sectarianism is uh, dividing over unnecessary, even unhelpful doctrinal distinctions. Tribalism, in a sense, or theological tribalism, we might um, describe it that way. But he says, doctrinal sectarianism harms not only the unity and mission of the church, but also the holiness of of the church. Let me give that statement again. Doctrinal sectarianism harms not only the unity and the mission of the church, but also the holiness of the church. Now stay with me this morning. To be perfectly clear, there are plenty of serious errors and grave issues, both of true doctrine and false teaching that absolutely need to be identified and dealt with properly today. Absolutely. Unity at all costs is not biblical Christianity. But perhaps you've noticed, particularly of late, that a lot of supposedly well-meaning people just love to fight and quarrel over virtually every single doctrine. They love to fight. And that's not a particularly good thing either. Somebody put it this way. Those who fight about everything and those who fight about nothing, both lack wisdom. Both lack wisdom. I put it this way. Unity in the church comes only when we pursue both gospel clarity, that is, Biblical truth with gospel charity. That is biblical grace. Unity in this church and unity in all churches will only be found when we pursue both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Gospel clarity and gospel charity. The fact of the matter is, Paul does not satisfy our curiosity by explaining every endless genealogy. Paul does not... uh, Unpack it all for us. Either the false teaching that Timothy's dealing with in Ephesus or the false teaching that Titus is dealing with over there in Crete. Now, he does describe it. Let me add a few words there. 
Notice that Paul says that it involves a different doctrine. A different doctrine. It comes from the Greek word heterodidaskaline. Heterodidaskaline. A different doctrine. Other than the pure doctrine, the pure gospel that had already been delivered to the church by Paul and the apostles. Remember that great statement found over in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 9 where Paul says, I'll pick up in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. This is a different gospel. Now moreover, he says that this troublesome teaching involves certain myths, certain myths and endless genealogies. Again, there's all sorts of rampant speculation as to what it was. Perhaps these were fanciful fables of Old Testament personalities that uh, New Testament Christians were beginning to really be preoccupied with. But what do they do? They only produce speculation. These breed further quarrels and result in divisions or dissensions. The point is, that's not the point of true biblical teaching, to divide us up and distract us from the cross. The bottom line for Paul and the reason why he deployed Timothy to the field in Ephesus was that these strands of false teaching, that is, these different doctrines resulted in legalism, not love. Legalism, not love. They built walls between Christians instead of building relationships full of grace and truth between the saints. The Ephesian church was teetering on the brink of collapse, but not because of external forces, but rather because of internal corrosion, because of quarreling. The church may have looked decent on the outside for an Ephesian uh, citizen, but it was rotting away on the inside because they were divided and they were distracted from Jesus. And so Timothy's task was to make these mischievous ministers face the music according to the word. So listen, while we don't know all the specifics behind these Jewish fables and religious myths, and we're no doubt foggy on the facts behind what Paul describes here as endless genealogies, that would be a whole lot of fun to investigate, we do know that these were mega distractions, mega distractions. These were a deadly departure away from the pure gospel of God's grace. And so that gives us a category for our own contemporary context. These were twisted truths polluting the purity of the good news of Jesus Christ. And they were wreaking havoc upon the unity of the church. Paul says that certain persons, that is false teachers, men like Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1 verse 20 and Philetus in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 17 and perhaps many others were becoming brazenly bored with their Bibles. Let me just state this. Sometimes, sometimes you have to name names. Sometimes you have to name names when they're causing disturbances in God's house. 
I think you should be careful when you name names to make sure you're not slandering another brother or sister. But sometimes you have to name names, and Paul does just that. These three false teachers were swerving away from the truth by veering into vain discussions and empty speculations. And this disturbance of the peace of Christ in God's house was upsetting the faith of so many. And it was Timothy's task to put an end to their nonsense in the church. But how? How was Timothy to rise to such a challenge? Well, fortunately for those who serve as pastors and elders, but really for any faithful disciple, Paul gives a few wise points of pastoral guidance and prudence. Let me share them with you this morning. First, Paul says to Timothy, just stay put. Remain there in Ephesus. The word that Paul uses here is prosmeno, and it means to continue remaining or to wait with patient endurance. Paul says to Timothy, your first strategy is to stick there, stick with it. Stay put. Stay rooted in your context. In other words, he says, Timothy, don't get itchy feet. Don't flee the fight, but fight the good warfare. See, not only did Timothy need to remember the past lessons of God's faithfulness as he was Paul's apprentice, but also he needed to remain on the job and trust in the Spirit in his day. Despite the obvious pressures and the fierce pushback that was undoubtedly aimed his way. One thing we need to learn as gospel ministers and faithful disciples today is there needs to be a stick to in the household of God with the truth. It's not easy to stand against opposition when you seem like you're the only one speaking the truth. But Paul says to Timothy, stay put. Stay put. Now secondly, as well, Timothy is charged to say to certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul says to Timothy, stay put, but secondly, speak up. Speak up. The word here, parangelo, means to transmit a message, to give an order, to issue a command or warn others. Listen, dealing with false teachers and divisive personalities is often a bare-knuckle brawl. It is often a bare-knuckle brawl. Why? Because if we lose sight of the gospel, we have lost the game of faith. If we give up the gospel, we've given up everything. Dr. Philip Ryken said that here there was a dangerous combination in Ephesus of arrogance and ignorance. And if there's two things that's hard to deal with, it's arrogance and it's ignorance. And yet Timothy was called to stay put and to speak out against arrogance and ignorance. Those opposing Timothy wanted control over the church. And they thought they knew a thing or two about the truth. Paul says here in chapter 1, verse 7, they are desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make, notice, confident assertions. Ever come up against somebody like that? Let me let you in on a little bitty secret. It is often the people who know the least that yell the loudest. It is often the people 
who know the least about the power and the truth of God that talk the most and the loudest about the will and the commandments of Christ. It's not he who shouts loudest, but he who is the nearest. The nearest to the feet of Jesus. Therefore, dealing with arrogance and ignorance on the part of others requires patience and persistence and spirit-led determination. This was no easy task for young Timothy. It required divine assistance. Paul told Timothy to stick it out and to speak out loudly in order to put out the flames of false teaching that were being cooked up in the kitchen of God's household. But listen, there's one more point. Notice thirdly that Timothy's attitude was just as important as his actions on the battlefield. What was Timothy's goal? But be careful with your answer. Somebody might be tempted to say, well, Timothy's goal was to shut up those false teachers, to stamp out the false doctrine, the heretical different doctrine. Wrong. That's not his goal. Or perhaps somebody might say, well, Timothy's goal was to prove that he was in charge and that he was in fact right. But again, you'd be wrong. That's not his goal. Look at the text to see Timothy's goal. Verse 5 says, the aim or the goal of our charge is what? Love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal is not to be right. The goal is to love what is right. It's easy to argue and to want to be right. It's hard to combat false teaching or some philosophy and be right with love. They're two different things. The goal in the gospel is never to destroy our opponents, but rather to seek to rescue them with grace. Paul put Timothy there not simply to snuff out the false teachers, but to oppose them and, if possible, to rescue them. And how do you rescue someone who's swallowed false doctrine hook, line, and sinker, but to remove it with the truth of God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ? The motivation and the message of a minister to his congregation must always be that of love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For there is nothing loving or Christ-like in winning arguments while destroying lives. Nothing. Knowledge puffs up, Paul says, but love builds up. Notice that Paul charged Timothy to stay put, to speak out, and to show love in Christ. To show the spotlight of grace and mercy and truth upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of gospel ministry, if you haven't seen it or caught it from me after seven years, it's my bad and not yours. The goal of gospel ministry is always love. Always. Always love. Proverbs 27 verse 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. 
Those who are tampering with the truth of the gospel by twisting and tying it together with the law, with legalism and with ludicrous speculations and loose myths and endless genealogies needed to be stopped. There's no doubt about it. But they also needed to see in Timothy what true love was all about. We have all sorts of people who are content to tell others they're wrong. What we're lacking are people who want to do the hard work of loving them to be right. Loving them to be righteous in Christ. On the other hand, on one hand, our culture says dogmatically that being loving requires us to affirm anyone and everything for literally anything and everything. Right? That love never says no. That's what our culture says. But friends, that's not love. That's idiotic. That's how you get drag queen story hour at the Barnes and Nobles. That's not just bad for business. That's sheer insanity. On the other hand, this is what we need to hear in this church. Some people, sadly, especially often in the church, wrongly believe that being loving requires us to get all scorched earth on anyone and everything that differs even to the slightest degree from what we've ever been taught. That if there's any gap between our theology and someone else, they are the enemy. And that's not good either. That's not gospel living and gospel unity. They believe that love is brash and bombastic and proud and mostly of all, it's being right. But again, that's not love. That's just being plain mean. That's not like Christ. Being a bully is never, ever Christ-like. Instead, love, as Paul says to Timothy here, and the goal of godly ministry must say the hard things. Must say the hard things. But must say the hard things in a spirit of humility and grace while being rooted and grounded in the truth and seeking the good of all people and the glory of God alone. Not one's own glory, but the glory of God. Love seeks to protect, not just to punish. Love seeks to rescue, not simply to remove others. The goal of gospel ministry is love, Paul says, that issues from a pure conscience, a sincere faith and mind, plain and simple. I don't envy Timothy's task in Ephesus one little bit. His charge of dealing with those knuckleheads who were distorting the pure gospel of the living Savior, Jesus Christ, while mixing in a little religious myth here and splashing in a little endless genealogy there, must have been maddening. It must have been maddening. But it was absolutely necessary, and I'm glad Timothy got that task, to be honest with you. But at the same time, I have to admit that today's pastors and church leaders have our own hands full with those who have infiltrated the church with their own versions of modern myths and anti-gospel preoccupations. Prosperity gospel preaching, for one. Partisan political ideology, for another. The gospel according to CPAC, to some. Endless social activism, Causes like the LGBTQSYZX, whatever else letters you go after that affirmation. 
unhelpful and overreactive race-based controversies. All of these are preoccupations from the main thing. There's a place and a time to dialogue and discuss those issues. But our heart is for our king. Our heart is for our king. Not even to mention the endless in-house debates and arguments over second and third tier issues of theology that rip apart fellowships and rip apart churches when we should be united in lock and step on the fundamentals of our faith. Don't let doctrine, true doctrine, divide you from each other. We've got our work cut out for us. That much is for sure. And the pastorals help us understand it. The point that Paul wanted Timothy here and us today to understand and remember is this. Friends, we're on the clock. It's our watch. It's our job in our day to guard the gospel from an endless alliance of evil influences. Will we step up in our day? And when we step up, what will be our weapon? Well, our weapon, firstly, is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So friend, let me ask you as I close, are you guarding your heart and your mind? And are you guarding the unity of this church and of the fellowship by the Spirit? Are you quick to be critical and to quarrel over minor differences on the one hand? Or are you quick to be gullible and naive and to swallow up the latest fad and fashion and every theological controversy on the other? Both are potentially dangerous. Both are destructive tendencies. Both extreme extremes lead to breakdown of gospel doctrine and gospel culture in the church. Both need to be repented of. So what are we to do? We are simply to keep our eyes fixed on the grace and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get bored with your Bible. It only leads to bad things. Don't let anyone try to entice you away from your first love by offering you some new clever teaching that might seem good for a moment, but then it harms your soul in the end. Fight false teaching by falling in love with Jesus more and more every day. Because you see, the best way to keep false teachers out of our house is by keeping our focus fixed on the master of our house, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you and we praise you for your truth. And I would pray simply the prayer of Christ in John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them, sanctify us, O Lord, your people, by the truth. Your word is truth. May we be adorned with the very righteousness of Christ, even as we possess the very righteousness of Christ by faith. We thank you in Jesus' name.